Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Corology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Corology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 48. Theology is null and void if it's not undergirded by joy, creativity, and imagination. The Reverend Broderick Greer is a priest on staff at St. John's Cathedral in Denver, where he directs liturgy and oversees ministry with people in their 20s and 30s. He occasionally offers lectures and facilitates conversations related to the interplay of culture, theology, and justice. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Teen Vogue, The Washington Post, and On Being. I am so excited to have Roderick on the podcast today. Uh, We're talking about those exact things, culture, theology, justice, specifically the idea of the ways that theology and liberation are intertwined. Uh, Broderick is really active on Twitter. Uh, If you don't follow him on Twitter, you need to do that now. Uh, It's at Broderick Greer. Uh, and something that he, he tweets about often is that if, if theology can be used to oppress us, it can also be used to liberate us. Uh, and we get into that conversation a fair amount. Uh, before we dive into that, this is some news that I'm really excited to share. Quirology is going to be at Wild Goose Festival this year. Uh, I'm going to be recording a live episode on the main podcast stage uh, there in Hot Springs, North Carolina this summer. Uh, it's July 12th through 15th. The Wild Goose Festival is an art, music, and story-driven festival that's grounded in faith-inspired social justice. Uh, they bring in people from everywhere so like this year like they've announced already like amy grant barbara ron taylor jen hatmaker ruby sales jackie lewis brian mclaren like like and and like so many more people including a ton of people who have actually been on this podcast uh so if you're interested in in joining me at the wild goose festival this year uh listeners of this podcast can get a 25 percent discount uh, by entering the code GooseCast18 when you register, G-O-O-S-E-C-A-S-T-1-8. 
uh, 25% off. Um, I would love it if y'all could join me. Uh, come see the first ever live episode of Queerology uh, and hang out with a bunch of cool people. Uh, with that, uh, let's just go ahead and dive in. Roderick, hi. Welcome. Hey, Matthias. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Good. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have it's you. It's a joy. Thanks yeah. for inviting me. I'm honored. Yeah. So so to start, the question that I ask everyone, um, how do you identify? And then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? Um, so there are lots of dimensions of my identity. I am queer and black. My pronouns are he, him, his. And um, I would say that my faith is probably most similar to that of Jacob and the strange um, angel god type being that appeared to him. And he wrestled with it and he would not let it go until it gave him a blessing. And I think that that probably is the best metaphor for my faith up to this point at age 27, that, um, Christianity, my faith, is something that I felt I had a birthright to and that I am at home in. Um, but maybe Christianity didn't realize that. And I had to kind of teach it a lesson over time and wrestle it until it said, okay, this is, this is truly where you belong. So that's my faith at this point in my life. Yeah. I, I, I'm, fascinated by this concept of kind of wrestling and and you said like teach it a lesson um <laughs> I, <laughs> like i love that <laughs> like, what what has that kind of been like for you well i mean growing up it was it was it was this sense as a kid of knowing that god loved me even if i you know at times could not love myself and I would often, you know, get very weepy as a child in the middle of church because I would have these kind of profound realizations of God's love, um, you know, in, in many ways similar to how the revivalist would refer to it in the 19th century of the warming of the heart in the sense that it's only me and God in the room. And I was able to hold on to that um, for a really long time. Um, especially in times of great doubt and confusion. So um, I would say, you know, my journey has been um, gritty and rough and anger-inducing at times, um, but always undergirded with love. Always undergirded with love. Um, I, I mean, I feel like... I, I, like I, with my familiarity kind of with your work and, and um, seeing you speak at like GCN conference. And I feel like that is, that is something that permeates your theology deeply, this idea of love, but not, not this kind of fluffy love that I feel like we often kind of bring about sometimes in our theology, but like something kind of deeply rooted in, I'm trying to think of good language for it, but like it, it's 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 deeply rooted in something a lot deeper than kind of that love everybody kind of idea that comes up. I think a lot of times in more progressive theology. Exactly. Well, I would say that. I mean, one of the most frustrating pieces um, that I hear from progressives who either don't have a robust 
theology of either scripture or of history or whatever is it's this um, all are welcome, you know, all people and all. And, and it's just it sounds great and it's a great idea, but we're not dealing with the U.S. Constitution. We are dealing with the living God who makes each of us in God's image and calls us not by category, but by name, according to theologian James Allison. And so there is this sense, there is this sense, I think, in my own kind of theological worldview that there is a universality to the living God. And there's a particularity as well. Um, and that's probably my Baptist upbringing. You know, there's a sense in Black Baptist kind of devotion and piety that each person has their own testimony or their own story, as a lot of our progressive evangelical friends would say, their own story or encounter of God. And, and it can't be disputed. And so there is at once, when it comes to love and theology and the way we refer to God, a universality that you know can be writ large. And there's also a particularity that cannot be argued with, that We've experienced God on our own terms, in our own bodies, through our own experiences, in the context of our own lives, and therefore must speak of it. Um, we have to tell what we've seen and what we've heard. And so it is not, you know, and, and that's the thing. I'm not a touchy-feely, um, sentimental I mean, a lot of, I mean, I think we have to always remember when we're doing theology that we're bringing our own personalities and like my, I am not sentimental. I am not, I don't need you to tell me some personal anecdote at the beginning of a sermon. Like I'm not looking to feel good in church. I'm looking to encounter something difficult and fiery and bling and awesome. And, um, yeah, so that that's how I approach theology. I don't I'm, I don't care for sentimentality. I care that our world is in need of transformation and in need of God intervening in the middle of history through us. Um, so yeah, that that is not the road I was expecting to just go down. But but that is <laughs> that's that's where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. It feels like. And I feel I feel like this is a word I use often on this podcast, but it, but it feels like a very embodied theology, a theology that puts so much importance and and weight in kind of the work of the people, um, and in the, the impact that we can have in this world through through embodying the work of God. Um, does that yeah, seem fair? Absolutely. I mean, and, and I'm an Episcopal priest who did not grow up in the Episcopal Church or in, or in Anglicanism. And what the Anglican and Episcopal faith has given me as a gift is the sense that when we love, we love not because we are so great. We love because God loved us first. We respond, we're only ever in prayer, in justice work, in anything, we're only ever responding to God's initiative. And when I was in college and was, you know, still an evangelical, the priest that 
I built a relationship with. That was something he said in his sermons all the time. It's always God's initiative. Grace is always God's initiative. If it's not, then it's not grace. And often in our liturgies, when we renew baptismal vows or people are confirmed or are baptized, we say, I will with God's help. That it is, yes, it is us, but it is also the spirit who is helping us. Um, And it's this synergistic um, movement of God and us and creation, hopefully working in tandem for a better world and for a better reality. I'm I'm thinking about like you often write and and tweet about this concept of kind of like theology is survival and, Mm -hmm. and like if theology can be used to oppress us, theology can also be used to, to liberate us. Um, and it feels like that ties in a whole lot with what you're saying right now. Like theology is more than just this kind of thought exercise, <laughs> but is something that is, that is done in the world. Well, exactly. I mean, I, today is what, April 29th and the reading for Lutherans, Episcopalians, Roman Catholics and other Christians who follow the Revised Common Lectionary today from Acts was the story of the Ethiopian eunuch and his baptism. And and I was struck again sitting in church this morning hearing the story and hearing the fact that the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, comes to Philip with a very specific question about Scripture. And as we understand scripture today, you know, we understand it very differently and we have it kind of divided very differently. And he was quoting from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And it's the part of Isaiah that we understand today as like Isaiah 51 or so through 54 or 55 or 56. And I can kind of, you know, enter the Ethiopian eunuch's mind and, you know, he's not um, basically Jewish by birth, possibly. He has been in Jerusalem, um, being a devout, practicing Jewish person of African descent. Um, he probably, because of his status as a eunuch, was not allowed into kind of the holiest place that lay Jewish men could go into. And he gets to that point in the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and says, is there a place for me, basically, in God's story? Um, and Isaiah's talking about a eunuch who has been cut off, um, you know, which is kind of a double entendre, cut off not only physically, but cut off from his own people because he will not have descendants, on and on and on. And I mean, imagine being this eunuch and seeing yourself in the scripture And thinking, what is the point of all of this? If I won't have descendants, if I'm not, um, you know, if there's no heritage for me, there's nothing for me to pass on, what is the point? And Philip, in a genius way, makes the connection with Jesus and says, this is like a lamb. He is like a lamb led to the slaughter. He is the one who took on the burdens and iniquities of Israel and humanity and the whole creation. And and Jesus identifies with you. And Philip's kind of preaching and argument is so compelling to this eunuch 
that he says, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? And it's in this very kind of physical act, this sacramental act of baptism that Philip invites this eunuch to reimagine his life and his place in God's story, his place in Israel, his place in creation. Um, And what's interesting is I think it's around Isaiah 56, the scroll says, um, it's very hopeful that, that even though you won't have a physical heritage, there is a sort of general heritage you can pass on to the world because of God's decisive action in history. Um, and so for me, you know, sitting in church week by week, day by day in morning prayer and other prayer services, you get this sense that God, God is not in the prophets and really the whole sweep of scripture is, is deeply interested in helping us just use our imaginations about what's possible when we unlock ourselves from self-judgment and open ourselves to self-compassion. And I mean, there, there are weird passages in Amos and Micah that talk about, um, you know, each person having their own God and there still being a place for them in kind of God's eschatological vision for Israel. I mean, these, these are weird, obscure passages we don't really read in church, but there's always kind of this universality, this inclusiveness, this sense that there is a place for you. You know, sometimes you have to force yourself into it. Sometimes you have to interrogate the scripture. Sometimes you have to in- interrogate history. Um, but there is a place even if you have to make it for yourself. Um, The seat at the table is not necessarily going to be offered to you by the person presiding at the table. Sometimes you have to bring your own chair. Um, You have to bring your own folding chair to the throne room. Um, And that's, that's the kind of people that raise me. Scrappy people, Southern Black people, who had this sense that they were worthy of dignity and they were worthy of respect, and they were worthy to be inheritors of a nation that they built, and that they weren't going to take no for an answer. Um, My parents did not raise me to be a pacifist. They raised me to fight back, to claim my dignity, to claim my place in the world, um, because they had a sense that there would be people who, who would say that I did not belong and that I did not have a place. Um, and so that's, that's what I mean when I say theology is survival. It's people who have taken texts, taken history, taken the church and said, I belong here. Um, please get used to it. Um, and probably not even (laughs) polite enough to say, please, they just say, get used to it. Bringing a folding chair to the table and saying like, get used to it. I'm here. Um, I feel like that's work that you're doing in, 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 in so I, I'm, I'm, my mind is going a lot of different directions around, I mean, James Cone, um, and, mm. and, um, liberation theology over and against kind of evangelical theology of, of, and that folding chair, um, mm-hmm. of being like, no, like, no, theology is liberating, 
But I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about that a little bit more. Um, does... Well, yeah, Dr. Cohn uh, died yesterday at the time of this recording. And he, people are saying he's the founder of Black Liberation Theology. Yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense of it being an academic discipline. No, in the sense that Black Christianity in this country or what Ruby Sells would call black folk religion um, preceded him by centuries. And he was just one of the first to say, our way of doing theology is valid. It's not marginal. It actually matches up with the way that people in two thirds of the world have been doing theology for centuries. Um, and that's why he, he has been so important to kind of the U.S. theological scene in particular. And I never met Dr. Cohn and never saw him in person, but I know many, many of his students who on Twitter and in other, on other platforms yesterday and today thanked him for saying it is okay to remain Christian and it's okay to remain in the church. Um, it's okay to claim theology for yourself. And and one of the difficulties of being in dialogue with people who either come from white Roman Catholic or white evangelical or mainline Protestant backgrounds is even though they did not see us, <laughs> like they didn't they didn't hear our sermons, they didn't hear our music. Um, we existed and do exist. Um, and have been doing that kind of gospel work for a very long time. And, and a lot of people are just now acknowledging that Black people exist in theology and exist in society and in culture and in music, and that we have kind of a distinctiveness about the way we live in the world and the way we sound in the world and the way we, are, we embody in the world. Um, but just because something is new to someone doesn't mean that it's new, that it's new. Right. Um, and so that's part of the difficult work of this era is kind of catching some people up to the fact that this is not a new thing. Um, you know, you think about Denmark VC back in the 19th century in Charleston and the way that he as a minister, if I'm not mistaken, he was an AME minister, African Methodist Episcopal. You know, they staged a revolt um, in the 19th century. Matt Turner, you know, staged a revolt. Um, so many different Black people have resisted white supremacy, enslavement, um, and other forms of indignity from day one. You know, people say, well, no one knew enslavement was wrong in the time of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, on and on. Black people knew. Um, why else did they jump off of, you know, slave ships? Why else did they try to escape the labor camps that they were being held on? Uh, they knew that, that, that there was no dignity in the way that they were being commodified and uh, turned into private property. And so the difficulty of this time is, is not getting just so frustrated. I mean, I, I, I kind of live in a neighborhood of frustration 
emotionally because there are people who are coming to their senses about the presence of black theology and womanist theology and queer theologies and on and on and on and are saying, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Why weren't you saying anything before? And we're all like, (laughs) you weren't listening. We have been saying this for centuries. Like this isn't new. Like just because it's new to you isn't, doesn't mean it's new to us. And I mean, I even remember being 12 years old and sitting in a pew and at church, it was like a Thursday night, if I'm not mistaken. And it was the day that the Iraq war started. And the moderator of our Baptist district association stood up and said, you know, war is wrong and we don't support this. And these are black Baptists who historically aren't necessarily pacifists or, I mean, whatever. I mean, but there was a sense, you know, people would say the whole nation was beating the drum of war. Not everybody. I mean, there were people who were saying this isn't right. Um, But when the priority is destruction and creating kind of a sense that there is a consensus to be destructive, then all of the people who are concerned with life and dignity and respect and peace are ignored. They're not silenced because they're not, they don't stop talking, they don't stop organizing, but they are ignored. Um, and that that is literally what we have that that has been our story this whole time. We've been ignored. Um, and that's what I tell people all the time. Like I, I, cause sometimes I have to like check myself and look back on things I've said on Twitter. And I, I basically have been saying the same stuff on Twitter since like 2011, but no one cared, which is fine. Like I, w- I was never saying it because I thought that I would like build a platform or an audience. Like I was saying it because I felt like it was right. And that's how so many people have existed in the world. Like we know, like we're not going to be noticed. We're not going to be famous. We're not going to have a huge platform, but we quietly do and try to act and try to live in a way that is consistent with Christ, you know, to use evangelical language, Christ being the center of our lives. And what are those ethical and moral implications for that? Um, Even when no one's watching, we're still baptized even when no one is watching. And so um, that that is the task at hand in the church, in the academy, in theology, is you know people not getting too ahead of themselves and saying, this is great that you're just now saying this. Um, it's a matter of having some humility and saying, wow, I didn't listen to you. You were right the whole time about your experience. And I was more concerned with, um, you know, not to berate them, but Karl Barth and, well, you know, I actually always put Karl Barth in that category. He does not belong in that category because he was actually very much opposed to fascism during World War II. I would say more of the Stanley Hauerwas, you know, people who aren't, who weren't at the time of their writing theology facing oppression in a systemic way. Um, People tended to to be drawn in very conventional white theological spaces to those voices and perspectives and not to those of people who are kind of on the receiving end of imperialism. 
you talked a, a little bit ago about kind of this this imagination of what's possible um, and, and doing theology. You, you didn't say this, but in, in kind of an imaginative way is kind of how I took that. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious, like, about this role of imagination in the way that you do theology. And it sounds like maybe the way that you live your life, because I because I feel like that's a concept we don't talk about a whole lot. This kind of idea of imagination in the way that we, we worship and, and live out our lives in the world. Oh, absolutely. I mean, people have said this about Anglicanism kind of tongue in cheek and about the Episcopal Church in particular, that Anglicanism produces musicians and poets and not theologians. Um, we And it's true, like we aren't like great at theology the way that Lutherans and Reformed Christians are. <laughs> um, but we're really good at hymnody and we're really good at musical anthems and vestments and beauty and incense and bells and kind of this visualization of what we understand as the awesomeness of God and of divinity. And so for me, you know, cause also we don't, in the Episcopal church, we're not really keen on like statements of faith that we don't do that. That's not our thing. We're not confessional in that way. Like you believe, you know, you, you sign this document saying you agree with these seven things and then you're an Episcopalian. That's not how we roll. Um, we affirm the creeds, the historic creeds of the church. And then beyond that, the important thing to us is how we pray. And that's what really drew me to Anglicanism, that it wasn't so focused, like my fundamentalist background was, on what I thought about very specific things. It was more concerned about making me a prayerful person and letting my praying shape my believing and letting my praying shape, hopefully, the way I operate in the world, the way I live, my ethics, my moral center. I often fail at that, so on and so forth. But that's kind of the the telos or the goal of all of this. So, you know, what's important to me, so, so I say all of that to say theology is null and void if it's not undergirded by joy, creativity, and imagination. And when I was growing up in, in the Black Baptist Church of my childhood, the pastors and preachers would often cue the congregation to do some imaginative work when they would say, and now I need you to use your sanctified imagination. And if they were talking about the story of the woman with the issue of blood, they'd say, and it was dusty outside. And, you know, they'd add all of these textures to the story Um, because for them, the text was not a straitjacket. It was a launch pad for creativity and imagination. And Anglicanism does the same thing. Why on earth do we use incense on high feast days in the Episcopal Church? Some people say it's a symbol of prayer. I am of the, um, the school of thought and opinion that we use incense for the sake of using incense. It has no other purpose than to just be incense 
in the presence of God and of God's people. That sometimes beauty has to happen and has to be presented for the sake of nothing other than beauty. Um, I mean, it's like asking a couple, why, you know, why are you getting each other gifts for your anniversary? You know, or, or a very uncreative spouse reading a list of reasons why their spouse is so great instead of just singing a song or playing a song on a guitar. Like, you know, like we can be very, we can be really didactic about this stuff or we can be really creative about it. Um, and like my friend Mark Oakley says often, a sermon, so mu- a story is so much more interesting when you say once upon a time than when you don't. I mean, you can say once upon a time, a grocery, and then read a grocery list. And that's more compelling than just reading the grocery list because it's cueing the hearer that something creative and imaginative is happening. And so theology must be undergirded by joy. It must be undergirded by creativity. And it must be undergirded by the reality that we are co-creators with God, that God has not given up on us, um, and that this world is not done being created. And I have some friends who are a little more simplistic about kind of biblical narratives, and they say, and I agree with them to an extent, I won't endorse this fully, but they say, Genesis begins with a garden and Revelation ends with a city. And that's the trajectory that God wants us on. It's not to get back to the garden. You know, and you hear kind of um, murmurs of this in theology, people thinking um, we need to to be more um, like Eden. And, and yet it seems that we're being pulled toward a new Jerusalem, this sort of holy urbanism, this sense that people from every tribe and nation and tongue are living out their own context, praising God from their own context. And it's this huge, beautiful, complex urban environment. And that is where we're headed um, in the eschaton, which is very exciting. Yeah, I, 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 um, I love that because I think so often, I think, I, especially within queer context, I think we, the garden is used as like that shining example of original creation and God's original design and a, a quotation marks around all of that. But that kind of idea of we have to go back to to this idea of like how things were originally created whereas like that doesn't seem to be the trajectory of scripture as you're saying like Mm -hmm. and and i'm curious like maybe or it sounds like you were about to say something well and then you have to break it to those people that genesis one and two are myths (laughs) like it's poetry (laughs) this these things aren't literal people it's poetry it's music like let it be that it's not a it's not a rule list or whatever I'm I'm curious about like how how does that imagination kind of show up in your life as a queer person who practices theology? Hmm. Well, I I think some of it is saying I like giving myself permission and also giving other queer people permission to say we are complex and like we're allowed to tell stories that are not 
Call Me By Your Name or, you know, some other kind of gay classic, like coming of age, coming out story. Like we have, there are other, like gay people also like go to the grocery store and die and get sick. And like, we are interesting and we're complex and that is okay. Um, I mean, I have loved, I watched a couple of days ago, Janelle Monae's new um, music video called Dirty Computer, which is awesome. And it's like 46 minutes. And one of the cool things about it, number one, is that she has black people existing in the future, which is awesome because a lot of um, sci-fi and futuristic films do not have us existing in the future which just says a lot about white supremacy and whiteness and how we just don't exist in these people's imaginations. Uh, So number one, she has this existing in the future. And number two, she has like this main character who experiences joy and love and separation and loss um, and ends up winning in the end, ends up taking, uh, and this is interesting, the two people that she's in a relationship with out from this horrible laboratory. And I hate to spoil it for the people who haven't seen it yet, but she wins. Like, that's good. Like, it's good for, like, queer people of color, queer Black people to, like, win things and, like, be heroes and, like, not always live in the middle of a tragedy and always be... um, Because that's not how our lives are. Like, our lives are complex. Like, we win sometimes, we lose sometimes. Like, we are human beings. We're not just these one-dimensional characters who exist for the dominant gaze, G-A-Z-E. Like, we exist and are self-referential and have a lot going on and are angry and get angry with our parents and don't always like our significant others and have really, really annoying landlords because we're human and we're here um, in many ways, just like everyone else. And yet like no one else. It's like that. It feels like that concept of like the universal and the particular again. Exactly. I'm, I'm curious. And this, like, I feel like this, this feels like a pivot, but I also feel like it ties in because you, you also mentioned very briefly um, kind of more at the beginning of the conversation, but these, these kind of texts and, and this idea of like self-compassion, um, it was just something that you lightly touched on, but I'm, I'm curious about like how self-compassion is something that, that I am super into, but, but I feel like it, it, that's something that kind of undergirds maybe a lot of what you're talking about in, in ways that maybe aren't highlighted, but I guess what I'm asking is how does self-compassion kind of play into all of this idea of, of imagination and, and just living life in that universal and the particular, um, does that make sense? Does that question make sense? (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that like either I think, I mean, I don't think it's an either or, but in many ways, like, for me at least, it's like either I think I'm like superhuman and can do anything and then I realize I can't and then I'm like, well, I can't do any, like I can't do anything, period. And I'm nothing more than a pile of bones and I don't deserve to live. You know, which is just so extreme. 
and so unrealistic because it i know intellectually like that's not true like i know i'm complex and i know i make mistakes and i know i help people and i know that i fail and i know that i succeed like all of these things can be true at one time and so when you know that about yourself and when people are saying you're only a failure you can like say i'm that's not true like that that's not true. I'm not just a failure. Like, yes, I've made mistakes. Yes, I fell at times. But that is not the whole story. And so that, you know, I think that that is the motivating factor for so much of what kind of liberate, how liberation movements have, um, have operated, at least in recent history, where women who are like extremely intelligent and also women who are like, normally intelligent, like just, just barely into like whatever, like know that they're capable of working and running things and being CEOs and voting. And like when people say, oh, women shouldn't be able to vote. You know, I just saw, I think it was Newsweek released a poll that said 60% of Republicans say they don't, they do not want to see a woman as president in their lifetime. And yet you have women who say that, 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 okay, well, whatever, like, I'm still going to run for president. I'm still going to make this work because I know that I'm qualified. And gay people, you know, throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, specifically in the 80s, when the AIDS pandemic was ravaging urban gay communities, um, and people were saying, I am entitled to health care. Like, the press secretary, the president's press secretary should address this. Uh, the president should address this. I am worthy of dignity. Um, yes, I make mistakes, but yes, I am like a complex human being. And so all of these people, I think, throughout history, Black people, LGBT people, women, Black LGBT women, um, have come to these realizations and probably are born with the reality that I am deserving of more and I'm going to fight until I get what I deserve. Even when people define us by mistakes or define us or project, you know, and, and this is unfortunately what ends up happening is all of the greatest fears that people have, specifically straight white people have, unfortunately, about their own capability to be inhumane, they then project it onto us and scapegoat us. Um, I mean, all this stuff, you know, horrific, horrific things that Mike Huckabee said about um, the bathroom bills and saying, well, if I were a red-blooded young man, I would dress up in a dress and go into a women's restroom. It's like no trans person has ever done that. But just because you would do that, now you're, now you're claiming that we would. And so we have, to, we have this capacity. And even oppressive people have the capacity too. And I, I put myself in that category. Um, all of us have the capacity to say, oh my goodness, I am profoundly in need of help. And I have made profound, I have made profound failures in my life. I've made huge mistakes. And I'm loved. And you know, I think it's Brene Brown who says, um, shame says, 
or no, 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 no. What is it? It's like shame. Shame and what's the other word? Uh, guilt. <laughs> yes, guilt says I made a mistake. Shame says I am a mistake. So it's really having that healthy distinction that I'm not, I'm not a mistake. Like, yes, I make mistakes. They may be profound, but I am, I am my person. I am not a mistake. So I think that that's what a lot of self of self compassion is is being able to make that distinction that yes I am guilty of whatever you want to say I'm guilty of but I am not ashamed um I am I am not the sum of my mistakes I'm I'm thinking like another Brené Brown quote I mean she says often the this idea of don't puff up don't back down, just stand your holy ground. And mm. like, that's what it feels like you're talking about. Like that, that saying, like, I have a right to stand on this ground. This is my ground. Like I'm here. Oh, exactly. Well, and I think about, um, the number of people I know who are black and in their sixties, actually, who are a part of these class action lawsuits against the federal government because of treatment by officials in their various capacities and in their employment in the 1980s and 90s and early 2000s. And it's like these people have been in these class action lawsuits, some of them since the early 1990s, and one since like 1993, 25 years, almost my whole lifetime, and are saying, I, I'm going to, like, I may die before you know, a decision's made on this case, but like, I'm still going to file the case. Like I'm still going to make, you know, stake my claim in this. Um, and that's courage, you know, knowing that the outcome may outlive me, but I'm still willing to assert my humanity and my dignity and show up and say, I deserve better. I deserve better. Now the issue, I mean, and people will say, I mean, I can hear them. You know, oh, well, that's so self-centered. Yeah, it's self-centered if you are at the top of the feeding chain and you still think that you're entitled to even more at the cost of everyone else. These are people saying, I'm at the bottom. I have been on the receiving end of violence upon violence. And I don't deserve to live in violence economically, socially, politically, religiously, familially. In my own uh, relationships or marriage, I don't, I don't deserve this. Um, it's not, I'm not, this is not a framework for people who are at the top. Um, but that's the Apple Care woman on Vine, you know, she's at the top and she wants more. That's this current president. He's at the top and isn't done. Um, this endless kind of consumption and, um, hyper-confidence about what one is entitled to is destructive. Showing up on a continent and saying, God is giving us this continent. This is a new world. Um, that's wicked. That is evil. That is um, unrestrained capitalism and imperialism and colonialism um, at the cost of far too many lives. So this kind of self-reverent self-referential, um, self-compassionate, you know, whatever sort of framework is for marginalized people. I'm not doing this for people at the top of the food chain. This, this is about people at the bottom, people 
like myself, people who I love in my own life, um, who are just trying to make it, make ends meet, make sense of their lives, um, who have the courage to just get out of bed in the morning, even though they know that they're, you know, going to a low wage job. Um, people who have never known, people who have worked their whole lives and have never had a career. I know many, I mean, that's every person I grew up around. Almost no one had a career, but they worked their whole lives. So, um, yeah, this isn't for suburban folks. Somebody else can do their theology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Thank you so much, Broderick. I think we're at the end of our time. <laughs> I'm sorry that I took up so much time. Uh, no. <laughs> This is this has been wonderful, and yeah, I'm so 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 grateful. Uh, how can people find your work? Um, the easiest thing is just to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Broderick Greer, B R O D E R I C K G R E E R, and that's where you can get the best sense of um, what I'm thinking, kind of on a, a minute by minute basis. And then also BroderickGreer.com. Um, I post some of my homilies and sermons on there from time to time. Great. Well, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And um, yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for your time. This was awesome. You can find Broderick on Twitter at Broderick Greer or check out his website, BroderickGreer.com. Uh, he posts his sermons there as well as a bunch of his other media and work that he's doing. That's BroderickGreer.com. Uh, Corology is on Twitter and Instagram at ChorologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Corology is produced with support from Natalie England, Tim Schrader, Christian Hayes, and other Patreon supporters. To find out how you can help support Corology, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to help support Corology is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app, or head over to MatthiasRoberts.com review, and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the podcast or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.